This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode features dramatizations and discussions of violence, slavery, and murder. Listener discretion is advised, especially for children under 13. It had been a summer to remember. Sophia was sad to see it end. As beautiful as the sunset was, to her, it looked like the hands of a clock, showing her how little time they had left. As the sky turned from orange to deep red, everyone slowly stood and began to roll up their beach towels, an unspoken agreement passing between the whole group. A low mist was rolling in from the water. Their time was up. But as Tom and Joe ran back to the car, Sophia stayed, looking out onto the darkening horizon forlornly. The ocean breeze glided across her exposed shoulders, sending a shiver down her spine. Sophia turned at the noise. It sounded like stones shifting. But this was not a rocky beach. And then she heard the scream. She called out to the others, but no response came. The car was out of earshot. Knowing her friends would not leave without her, Sophia ran toward the mist. Whoever she had heard, he was in pain. A dark shape came into view lying on the dunes. A man, face down in the sand. Streaks of red ran from his form into the waves. Sophia knelt by his side, asking if he was okay, if she should call for help. He laughed and answered in Spanish. He told her there was no help for him here. He would meet God soon. Then he turned to look at her. His teeth were broken and his throat opened in a thin gash. And then he washed away, dispersing like a clump of algae into the waves. As Sophia stood shaking, her foot brushed against something hard. She looked down at her feet was a tower of neatly stacked rocks. Welcome to Haunted Places, a ParCast original. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. You can find all episodes of Haunted Places and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Haunted Places for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Haunted in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review 
wherever you're listening. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to Manzanita Beach on the coast of Oregon and discover why, to this day, it's haunted. Manzanita, Oregon is the ideal coastal town. With a population of under a thousand people, it fits the description of quiet beach town perfectly. Plans for a beach resort on this patch of Oregon land were first drawn up in 1912, and two years later, the Manzanita Post Office was built. The town is named after the Manzanita shrubs growing around the area. The name Manzanita is fitting for another reason. In Spanish, it means little apple. The modest size of the town makes this feel like a particularly appropriate name. And yet, despite the town's quaint appearance and unassuming nature, there's a dark energy that surrounds the seven-mile-long Manzanita Beach. When night falls, mysterious forces are said to work in the dark. The origin of this haunting is said to date back to a 16th century legend told by local Native American elders. They must be cursed, Joaquin thought to himself as he dragged his waterlogged body ashore. His comrades clustered nearby in the dunes, staring forlornly toward the rocks. Joaquin did not want to look back, but he had to. He was the quartermaster. He had to know what was left. His heart broke when his gaze settled on the remains of their vessel. She had not been a perfect ship, but she'd been sturdy and reliable. Joaquin had sailed with her for over a year. Her captain, Cristobal, had been with her even longer. But now, sitting off kilter between the rocks, she was a sorry sight. Her hull gaped open wood split all along the keel. Her figurehead was cracked along the middle, the mermaid leaning backward as if praying for a quick death from this agony. Face down bodies of sailors bobbed lazily in the water around her. A dinghy rowed its way to the shore. Joaquin fumbled in his bedraggled overcoat and produced a spyglass. Looking through it, he recognized the figure of Cristobal sitting in the boat. Resentment burned in Joaquin's gut. So many of their crew had died in the storm, and the man who brought them there still lived. He swallowed his rage as the captain stepped ashore. Cristobal ordered his men to take as much as they could carry. They were going inland. Joaquin peered inside the longboat to see what the captain had managed to salvage. Joaquin's fury deepened when he saw what his captain had brought. It was not full of food or drink. It was full of gold. Their plunder. He whirled on Cristobal, accusing him of letting his greed outweigh his reason. The captain turned his gaze on Joaquin evenly. The way he looked at him was unnerving. Cristobal simply told Joaquin to take a sack he would be grateful when they returned to Spain as rich men. Joaquin's limbs ached as the crew trudged up the mountain. Beside him, an African slave they called Benito labored under twice as much gold. Joaquin wondered what was going through his head. 
Would he attempt to run for freedom whenever his Spanish masters closed their eyes? Joaquin would not blame him. The grass rustled around them. Joaquin exchanged a glance with his captain. They were being watched. Joaquin's hand fell to the pistol at his belt. He had made sure to dry out his gunpowder before they left the beach, so he would be ready for any violence that would occur. But the natives did not attack. The sailors reached the crest of the mountain at dusk. Cristobal threw a shovel into the sand and barked an order at the others. Dig. Hunger gnawed at Joaquin's stomach as he brought the shovel down again and again, tearing the earth apart with deliberate slowness. Maybe given time, his captain would come to his senses and have them return to salvage useful supplies. But no such reassurance came from behind him. Only the harsh reminder to dig faster. When the hole was finished, they filled it with all the gold they could carry. As they worked, Joaquin felt a cold steel point touch the nape of his neck. He froze. Cristobal's voice whispered into his ear. They needed to make sure the natives wouldn't dig up the treasure and keep it for themselves. Without raising his voice, Cristobal told Joaquin to kill the slave. Joaquin stiffened. He had no wish to kill Benito. The slave was soft-spoken and probably much too strong for him to subdue on his own. Joaquin calmly attempted to explain this to the captain. A surge of pain exploded from the back of his skull. Joaquin bent over, clutching his head where a nasty lump was already starting to form. The captain had struck him with the pummel. Joaquin shook his head and looked up to a horrific sight. Benito stood facing the captain. It looked as if he had just turned away from his task. A line of red ran across his throat. As the slave gasped and gurgled for air, Cristobal plunged his sword into the man's heart. Joaquin scrambled to his feet. He watched Benito drop onto the earth, where he lay still on the chest and sacks of gold. He turned to the captain in shock. The captain stood still, crimson blade glinting in the twilight. The natives would not dig up a freshly dug grave, he said. Their treasure would be safe. Joaquin stared at the captain in disbelief. This gruesome detour had gone on long enough. He ripped the pistol from his belt and pointed it at the captain. The man was clearly unfit for command. They needed to get back to the ship before all their useful supplies had vanished beneath the rising tide. Eyes cold, Cristobal told Joaquin to lower the weapon. He could forgive the threat. The man was exhausted. He clearly did not know what he was doing. If Joaquin did not lower the pistol, he would consider this an act of mutiny. Joaquin cocked the weapon. The other sailors did nothing to intervene. The chain of command would be settled between these two men. Cristobal raised his sword. Joaquin pulled the trigger. The weapon fizzled, then backfired, 
spraying dirty fire into Joaquin's face. His eyes stung with smoke and black powder. Sometime during the wreck, debris had been caught in the barrel. He felt rough hands close around his arms and he scratched at his burning eyes. His fellow sailors had finally chosen a side. Joaquin's vision cleared. His captain loomed over him, the same mask-like expression on his face. He raised the point of his sword to Joaquin's throat. Cristobal asked Joaquin if he repented his mutiny. Joaquin heard his captain's words, but he did not respond immediately. His right hand had gone completely numb. He looked over to it. It was black and charred fingers clawing in unnatural directions, forever marking him as a mutineer. He looked back to his captain and shook his head. Cristobal sighed and speared Joaquin's heart. The legend surrounding the Manzanita Beach is vague, but enticing. It tells the story of a handful of Spanish sailors who came ashore on the Oregon coast. The legend is unclear about whether they were shipwrecked or simply anchored there. Whatever the case, the sailors hiked up the nearby Niakani Mountain and buried their gold somewhere on its peak. In order to prevent the local Native Americans, possibly the Tillamook tribe, from digging up their gold, the Spaniards murdered an African slave they brought with them and buried him with the gold. According to certain sources, the sailors killed more than one person on top of that fateful mountain. If the unfortunate sailors were indeed shipwrecked, Spanish records indicate five possible vessels that could have buried treasure near Manzanita Beach. The San Juanillo, the San Juan, the San Antonio, the San Francisco Javier, and the San Jose. We may never know the truth, as the gold remains to be found. In a moment, we'll catch a glimpse of the spirits that haunt the buried treasure. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. Manzanita Beach is dominated on one side by the ominous face of the Niakani Mountain. A local legend claims that 16th century Spanish sailors buried treasure somewhere on the slopes of this mountain. To protect it against the natives, they killed a slave and possibly another sailor to make it seem like a burial site. As early as 1814, residents of Manzanita have found slabs of beeswax on the beach at the foot of the mountain, indicating at least a visitation by the Spanish treasure fleet. Many Manzanita locals claim that the trails of Niakani Mountain are haunted by the ghosts of the men killed by these Spanish sailors. 
these ghost stories have not stopped a number of would-be treasure hunters from attempting to make their fortune on the slopes of Niakani Mountain. How much was gold worth anymore? Calvin found this question bouncing through his mind as they hiked step by step up the mountain. He had not bothered to check the exchange rates before he and his best friend Leroy set off toward the mountain. Leroy reassured him that even if the gold was worth $20 an ounce, it would still be worth it. If the legends his uncle told him were true, they would have to measure it in pounds, not ounces. The sky turned a deep blue above them. Calvin and Leroy agreed that dusk was the best time to go treasure hunting, so they would not be spotted by park rangers. Digging in public property was illegal, and until they found the gold, neither of them were well off enough to pay the fine. One of the shovels slipped from Calvin's hand and clattered onto the ground beneath them. It started to slide down the slope. Thinking fast, Calvin stomped on it. He wobbled back and forth, almost losing his balance. Finally, he steadied himself. They were quiet for a moment, hoping no one heard the noise. When there was no reply, Calvin picked it back up and they trudged onward, leaving the trail behind. The terrain was painfully uneven beneath Calvin's tread. The dirt beneath their feet was full of treacherous pits half-filled in holes and gashes carved recklessly into the landscape. It was almost like the land itself was covered in scar tissue. Leroy began telling him a story. It was about a couple of men who attempted a similar expedition in the 1930s. They'd been so confident about their information that they dug a whole cave into the mountain. But the men were not professional miners. They took no safety measures, and they were so determined to find the gold that they did not hear the mountain groaning under its own weight, warning them of their impending doom. Before they knew it, they had been buried alive. Calvin scoffed at this story, saying the two men were idiots. Sailors burying treasure would not put it deep enough to risk a cave-in. Leroy agreed. But the next thing he said chilled Calvin to the bone. He said wherever they stepped, they could be walking on top of their long-dead neighbors. Leroy switched his headlamp on as the darkness drew in. Following his friend's lead, Calvin did the same. They were not far from their destination, a patch of unmarked ground Leroy thought was the most ideal place to dig for treasure. Calvin didn't know what differentiated this spot from every other spot on the mountain, but he trusted Leroy. Leroy read lots of books, so he knew what he was talking about. They wasted no time when the ground leveled out. Calvin unpacked the rest of the spades and pickaxes they brought with them and laid the tools out on the ground beside them. Then they got to work. It was mind-numbing work. Calvin dug at the dry earth with all his strength, keeping an eye out for any hint of yellow metal. But as they dug, his gaze started to blur. He could close his eyes and keep on shoveling by instinct. 
Experimentally, he shut his eyes and let his limbs continue digging. It was strangely calming, striking the earth over and over without looking. The rhythm of their digging was a soothing sound in the night air. But then their two pickaxes sounded like three, then like four. Then they were joined by grunts that sounded completely foreign to them and voices speaking in Spanish. Calvin shook himself, casting his beam around the darkness. Had he almost fallen asleep? He looked over to Leroy, who stood nearby, pickaxe frozen in mid-strike. He had heard it too. But there was no one around them. The night was a curtain of black surrounding the two friends. Their eyes met. Calvin squinted against the beam of Leroy's headlamp. Leroy gave a sharp nod, recognizing the fear in Calvin's eyes. They had to be quick. Calvin was fully alert now. There was something not quite right about this place. They should finish their work as soon as possible. Then his shovel struck something a little softer than a rock. Calvin raised the shovel, holding the blade level as he shook it, sifting the dirt. The small stones and dry grains of dirt shifted, revealing a broken human jawbone and a cluster of teeth. Peeking out from the dirt at his feet was a human skull, half shattered by his shovel. Calvin dropped the dirt and bones with a cry. Leroy turned, eyebrows knitting with concern. He asked his friend what was wrong. Calvin pointed a shaky finger toward the bones. When Leroy saw them, he didn't scream like Calvin had. His eyes glinted with a strange light. A grin spread across his mouth. He knew it. They were getting close. Leroy picked up Calvin's shovel and began digging at the spot furiously. Where there were bones, there must be treasure. Calvin tried to point out that he may have found the bones of those old treasure hunters, not the original sailors, but his friend didn't seem to hear him. The wind howled around them, swirling the dirt around their heads. Calvin shut his eyes against the whirlwind of sand, earth, and small rocks. The pebbles beat against Calvin's face, scratching and scraping painfully against his skin. A moment later, all was still. Calvin opened his eyes. He was almost nose to nose with a dead man. Calvin stumbled backwards in shock. The figure stood between him and Leroy, who was still shoveling madly at the dirt. The man wore a simple 16th century sailor's tunic. Its only distinguishing feature was a large red stain spreading from his chest and a twisted burnt hand held limply by his side. Calvin shakily called Leroy's name, but once again, Leroy did not respond. The ghostly sailor shook his head sadly. Then he slipped into the night. Calvin let out a shuddering gasp when the man disappeared. Ahead of him, Leroy kept digging at the earth. Calvin marched forward, grabbed Leroy by the shoulders, and pulled him out of the ditch. 
Leroy squirmed, and Calvin gripped harder, hoping Leroy would just tire himself out. Then he could tell him what he just saw. Once his friends stopped fighting, Calvin let go. Leroy turned. His eyes were bloodshot and watery. There were tears forming at the corners of his eyes and sand coating his face. Calvin realized that his friend must have kept staring at his work, even when the wind blew debris into his eyes. Leroy pushed Calvin violently to the ground. He was furious. How dare Calvin interrupt him? This was his ticket out of this stiflingly boring town. With the treasure, he could make something of his life. At that moment, a horrible scream echoed all around them. The earth beneath Calvin seemed to vibrate with it, as if the very mountain was howling in agony. Even Leroy faltered at the sound, hands extended to steady himself. Both Calvin and Leroy cast their beams around the slope, making sure they were the only ones on the bluff. They were not. As Calvin's beam slipped through the grass, a faint gray figure caught his eye. When he looked back, there was nothing. And then it returned. It was joined by another specter and another, all hovering just out of range of his headlamp, gray phantoms circling the two of them. Calvin was frozen to the spot with fear, shivering improbably in the summer night air. He felt a body push up against him and nearly jumped out of his skin in shock. It was Leroy. He had backed up to join Calvin, pickaxe held like a weapon. Neither of them were thinking of gold anymore. Leroy was the first to move, charging off into the night, pickaxe held above his head. Calvin watched as the spectral figures converged on the speck of light that was Leroy's headlamp. He switched his own off. Then he crept into the darkness, retracing his steps toward the trail. He had the car keys. If he could just get out of the park before morning, it could be like none of this had ever happened. It was not his fault that Leroy went gold crazy. All these plans vanished from his mind when he felt cold breath on the back of his neck. He picked up the pace, slipping haphazardly from one pitfall to the next. There was no sense in turning around. It was too dark for that. His heart beat furiously in his chest. Then he felt something sharp press into the base of his spine. He ran into the night. He no longer considered where he was going. He was simply trying to run away. If he ran far enough, maybe it would be quiet again. Maybe he would be safe. After what must have been several hundred paces, Calvin's foot felt nothing but air. For a horrible instant, he thought that he'd run off the mountain itself. Then he was rolling into a ditch. He landed painfully at the bottom, his tailbone cracking against something hard. He writhed on the ground for a moment, waiting for the throbbing to ease off. He fumbled with his headlamp and switched it back on. He instantly regretted this decision. The hole was encircled by sailors. Some had swords, some had pistols, and others held nothing at all in their hands. 
the beam of his lamp pierced them like the surface of a lake dissipating into the sky beyond. They stared down at him with a vacant, hollow-eyed look, like they were looking right through him. Then, the dirt around him began to shift, like something beneath it was tunneling toward the surface. A skeletal hand burst from the ground beside him and wrapped around his mouth. Another grabbed his chest. Two more seized his legs. He tried to strike at his assailants with his fists, but only hit dirt. His attackers were protected by the earth that had consumed them. They dragged him into the sand, lamp and all. As the sand filled his throat, the last thing he saw was a glint of yellow metal. The treasure hunting craze surrounding Neocani Mountain predates the California Gold Rush by almost 50 years. As soon as fragments of beeswax inexplicably started showing up on Manzanita Beach, the legends began to spread. There was a treasure trove here, and whoever found it would be rich beyond their wildest dreams, as long as they could stomach unearthing a decomposed corpse along with it. This rumor was fueled by the wreck of a ship just off the coast, thought to be the Santo Cristo de Burgos, a galleon that ran aground sometime in the 1600s. Chunks of this wreck remained visible well into the 20th century, before the last bits of rotten wood vanished beneath the waves. Throughout this period, treasure hunting on the coast of Oregon flourished. Eager amateurs dug into the mountainside, with everything from shovels to bulldozers. Due to the extreme damage it suffered over the years, Neocani Mountain became known as the Mountain of a Thousand Holes. In 1967, Oregon passed the Treasure Trove Law, requiring all would-be gold diggers to obtain permits before scraping up more of the park's landscape. Today, digging on the mountain is illegal. Some theorize that the treasure had already been found long before most of the treasure hunters even heard the story. In the early 1800s, a fur trapper named Thomas Mackay landed on the west coast when the boat he was traveling on, Tonkin, shipwrecked. Choosing to stay in Oregon, he obtained employment with the Hudson's Bay Company for a while. During the 1820s, he was seen frequently carrying a spade up to Neocani Mountain. Then, without warning, he quit his job and settled in Champui. Though these details are very difficult to verify, it was rumored that he didn't have to worry about money in the later years of his life. So it's more than possible that the treasure is already gone, having been taken when the legend was still young. But whether the treasure is there or not, the spirits of Manzanita Beach have yet to leave or even reveal themselves to the modern beach bum. In a moment, we'll explore the Oregon hauntings people experience to this very day. Now back to the story. Despite the explosive popularity of beach towns all across America, Manzanita has never quite grown beyond its modest origins. 
The rumored treasure of the mountain was not enough to cause a population boom, and to this day, the inhabitants number less than a thousand people. Most of the people living in Manzanita are resigned to never finding buried treasure or shipwrecks. They're content to enjoy their time by the beach with family, friends, and more good times on the horizon. Anna couldn't help but worry about the fire. She knew her brother had been a Boy Scout, but the small barrier of rocks seemed like a very flimsy protection against rogue embers. Scott told her to stop being so anxious. This beach day was for her. If nearby bushes caught fire, it was his duty to put it out. The four of them sat around the fire, munching on hot dogs. Anna tossed her red rubber ball into the darkness, only for their dog Felix to bring it back right away. He always sprayed sand from his fur every time he reached her. It was impossible to keep him clean. But she would not have to worry about giving their dog a bath. Once the weekend was over, she'd go off to school, and her parents would only have Scott to look after them. They knew it was coming, but somehow none of them were prepared to open up about it, as if even mentioning her upcoming departure would ruin the mood. Anna threw the ball again. At this rate, her arm would be worn out before they even started roasting marshmallows. Felix ran a few paces, then stopped on the edge of the orange glow. Anna looked over at the dog. His tail wagged lazily, then slowed to a stop. Anna stood and walked over to Felix. His gaze was fixed at the darkness beyond, standing parallel with the waves. She gave the dog a pat, but he didn't budge. He just kept staring. Anna walked ahead, roving the ground with her gaze. The light from the fire reached far enough that she could make her way through the gloom with little difficulty. The dull orange light danced all around her, casting its glow on the sand in hypnotic patterns. She had only gone maybe 50 feet when she saw the marks on the wet sand where it had bounced. She followed the little divots until she found the ball, lazily floating back and forth in the tide. She breathed a sigh of relief. She was glad she hadn't lost this ball in the waves. Anna looked back. She didn't expect the fire to be so far away. It was a tiny orange speck on the dark beach, flickering ever so slightly. Had she really thrown the ball this far? Then, an icy cold breath extinguished it like a candle. She was plunged into darkness. Slowly, her eyes adjusted to the murky light. She peered toward where her family had been moments before. She could not see them or hear their voices. If their fire had just gone out, she would surely hear their shouts of surprise. Anna heard a bell ding. She turned. A dark shape hovered on the horizon. A galleon, massive sails billowing in the wind. Specks of yellow light dotted its side. Faint voices carried across the waves, but she could not make out any words. The voices sounded urgent. As she watched, the ship creaked and rolled against the waves. 
fighting a strong current that didn't exist. It careened toward the dark shape of the nearby sandbar, Nehalem Spit. When the galleon met the rocks, its lights snuffed out. Distant screams drifted to the shore. Anna shivered, stepping out into the waves. The water was so cold against her feet, sand tickling her heels like fingers. Her eyes strained into the darkness, searching for the ship she had seen. She could see nothing. She took a step back, toward where she last saw her family, and nearly tripped over something. It was a small pile of rocks, stacked with meticulous care. The topmost rock wobbled and slid off into the sand. Anna picked it up and restored it to the pile. A horrible pressure filled her ears, like she had suddenly changed altitude without moving a muscle. Every sound around her was muffled by an intense throbbing, the sound of blood pounding in her veins. She dug her fingers into her ears, trying to clear them, but nothing happened. Her world remained painfully muted. Then she looked up. Similar stacks of rocks stood before her. There was one every few paces, leading off into the distance. And at the very edge of her vision, someone, no, something, was stacking them. Anna squinted in its direction, trying to discern any details about the figure. It was pale and rail thin. Its arms and legs were so emaciated, they might as well have been bone and nothing else. Its skin, if it even had skin, was translucent, glowing dully in the moonlight that came off the waves. Something about this creature filled Anna with disgust. She took a step back and knocked over one of the rocks. The creature froze, its head jerked upward, staring in Anna's direction. She held her breath, praying the creature couldn't see in the dark. A horrible wail issued forth from the creature. Its voice sounded like metal scraping against wet stone. It pierced Anna's muffled ears and sent a chill running all over her body. She wanted to look away, but she could not. Its eyes were upon her. They were hollow and pitch black, like the eyeballs had rotted away years ago. The creature raised its bony arms and charged toward Anna. She finally tore herself away from its horrible gaze and ran. The screaming followed her, piercing through her blocked ears like a foghorn through a quiet night. She felt the water rise up to her calves, but she kept running, the horrible shrieking on her heels. Eventually, the dark water closed over her head. Under the waves, it was quiet. Perfectly quiet. Anna felt herself relax in the cool dark. She was safe from the horrible rock-stacking creature here. She opened her eyes, ignoring the sting of the salt. It was right in front of her. Despite the inky blackness of the water, the creature in front of her was clear. 
a shrunken skull, waterlogged and emaciated. Pale skin pulled tight over petrified bones. Its mouth was open in a silent scream, revealing black and broken teeth. Anna couldn't see the surface. She didn't know how to escape it. Its bony hands reached forward. She struck out, trying to swim away. And then, a red ball hovered into her vision. Felix's ball. It was floating on the surface. She kicked furiously, fighting her way upward. Its fingers scraped against her calves. Salt water stung each fresh wound they made. Finally, she broke the surface. The waves brought Anna to the shore. She lay on the wet sand, coughing and spluttering. The orange light of her family's campfire had returned. The world had gone back to normal. But the piles of rocks still remained. There is one curious phenomenon on Manzanita Beach that has gone unexplained to this day. People wandering across the beach often find stacks of rocks on the sand, built so elegantly that they could not have appeared by accident. The person who builds these structures has never been seen. Some believe it is connected to the buried gold on Niakani Mountain, and others believe it is a separate spirit one which has never made its presence known to the residents of Manzanita. Whoever or whatever tampers with the rocks on the Oregon shores prefers to remain in the shadows. Manzanita Beach has everything a person could want from a coastline. It is both quiet and breathtakingly beautiful. Manzanita is the third most photographed part of Oregon, and it's not hard to see why. Visitors and locals can enjoy relaxing by the sea without worrying about the sort of overcrowding one sees on more famous beaches. But be careful where you go. Walking the beach at night could lead to an unnatural encounter. And whether these lurking spirits are guarding buried gold on Niakani Mountain or stacking rocks for some reason lost to time, Disturbing them is never a good idea. Ancient spirits can often ruin a pleasant walk on the beach. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite podcast originals, like Haunted Places, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Haunted Places on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Haunted Places in the search bar. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. 
Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Kenny Hobbs. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Robert Teamstra. I'm Greg Polson. <laughs>